Well, go ahead and grab a seat. Uh, let me add my welcome this morning. My name is Alistair. Uh, if we've never met, I'd love to meet you after the service, get to know you, hear a bit about your story. Uh, just a couple of things. First, the AVM. You just heard Chandler's passionate plea. Uh, I don't often use this, but I am issuing a pastoral decree. Please sign up today. Lots of you have signed up, but if you haven't signed up, take out your phone right now. Go to stpf.ca events. Keep that open and sign up after the service. Uh, I know it's cryptic, but we have big announcements next Sunday, and we really don't want you to miss out on them, and we want you to be a part of those conversations. So please sign up for vestry meeting. I know there's cooler things to do than general meetings like filing your taxes on time, uh, but hey, beggars can't be choosers. So please, annual vestry meeting. Uh, this is our 46th sermon in the Gospel of Luke. And some may, that's, some may say that's a little bit excessive for how little ground we've covered. We're only in chapter 9. Uh, hopefully, though, you disagree. Hopefully, you see this as an endlessly fascinating book worthy of such attention and thorough study. Either way, you're going to be relieved to know that this will be our last sermon in Luke for the next few months. Uh, a new series is beginning next week called Brick and Mortar, and this is going to coincide with the beginning of Lent and take us all the way through to Trinity Sunday. And so I want to encourage you today to pick up one of these uh, nifty workbooks that our team put together for this series. Uh, you can grab them at the connection table. They're $5, $5, which is optional. So if you don't want to spend $5, go to brick.stpf.ca, type in the code NOPE, and it'll be free. Uh, we're just trying to recoup some of the production costs, but uh, we really want you to grab one of these today. It'll help you work through the series in the weeks to come. There's reflections, there's poems, uh, practices for you to try to help you uh, dwell richly in the gospel, and that's what we're going to be doing for the next 16 weeks. So, starting next week, we have a rest from Luke, just not today. So I actually think this is an apt spot to start, uh, stop in Luke's gospel. Uh, as we've been saying through this whole series, there's one fundamental question that's going on in the gospel of Luke. Luke, if you're not familiar, is a historic narrative about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, and it is trying to answer one question. Who is Jesus? And we're at a critical juncture in the gospel because now Jesus turns to his disciples and he says, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? In other words, it's time to start formulating an answer. Of course, I assume most of you know the answer. Uh, you've just heard Luke 9 verses 1 through 22 read. So at the very least, you can repeat what you just heard. Jesus is the Christ of God. Jesus is the Christ of God. But even if you know this answer, my hope is that you're never going to tire of considering it again and again. And I hope that um, we won't presume to grasp all the implications of what this answer means, not only for us, but what this answer also means to Christ. And I have to admit, and, and Julia likes to point this out from time to time, I am at risk of being someone who fails to appreciate the sunset. Julia says, I have this weird relationship with creation. Whenever she says something looks beautiful, I go, yeah, it's all right. And I don't want to be that person. And in the same way, we can become overly familiar with spiritual or theological truths. But we don't ever want to become the sort of people who can no longer relish 
in the goodness of God in display in Christ. So if, if these sort of questions, these sort of passages are familiar to you, I ask that you just press in, try to hear them afresh. And I want to speak to you, if, if you're just exploring faith, if you're still uncertain about who Jesus is, just know we're really glad you're here. Uh, I hope that this passage will help you start formulating a bit of an answer, because if anything's clear in this passage, it's that Jesus wants every single person to answer this question for themselves. And if we don't answer it, if we say, oh, how could I ever know? That is an answer. That is an answer. And you might feel a sense of intellectual integrity in saying, I don't know. Fair enough. But according to Christ, this will not be a satisfactory answer. Because despite how perplexing Jesus can be at times, and let's be honest, when we work through the Gospel of Luke, he can be hard to grasp at times. Jesus outright reveals who he is to us. And he wants us to decide what to do with that answer. And so the decision before us is not whether or not we'll answer this question. For all of us in this room, the decision is, will we accept Christ's own answer? And we want you to know if you're exploring faith, you're welcome here. This space is uh, hopefully a place where you can experience patience and gentleness and respect as you ask that question. Uh, but don't take any longer than necessary. Ask the question, seek the answers, and find the answer. So in our passage, the question comes up, who is Jesus? But it actually comes up three times in three different ways, if you paid attention. Herod asks, who is this that I hear about such things? Jesus asks, who do the crowds say that I am? And then he asks again, who do you say that I am? And so I want to look at each of these three questions. So let's begin with Herod's question, who is this about whom I hear such things? If you have a Bible, open it up to Luke 9. If you don't own a Bible, grab one of our gray Bibles. It's yours. Everything will be on the screen behind me. Luke chapter 9, beginning in verse 7. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening, and he was perplexed. Because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. Herod said, John I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. So Herod the Tetrarch shows up again. This is Herod Antipas. Uh, he was the son of Herod the Great. Uh, during the time of Jesus' ministry, Herod was the established king over Judea. And he was a pretty savvy politician. He worked really hard not to offend Jewish sensibilities while also staying in the good graces of their Roman overlords. So this was no easy feat and Herod was savvy, but he was also ruthless. And Herod, he starts hearing these stories about Jesus and all that was happening. And it's unsurprising that the news of Jesus is slowly working its way up into the upper echelons of power and authority. After all, our passage in Luke 9 that we just read, it begins with Jesus calling his disciples to himself and then sending them out as his ambassadors. Jesus calls them, he gives them his own authority to go out, proclaim the kingdom, and heal. And then the gospel, the gospel says, the disciples go and they do that. They go everywhere proclaiming the gospel, the good news, and healing. And so this growing movement around Jesus raises questions. Jesus is sending out his own ambassadors. He can share his authority with others. Who is this man? He's acting like a king. Now, Herod, he hears about all that was happening, and he's perplexed. 
Because there's a bunch of folklore answers out there. Some say Jesus is John the Baptist raised from the dead. Others say he's Elijah now reappearing. Yet others think it's one of the prophets of old that has arisen. And each answer surely comes out of different biases and opinions. But lots of ideas are out there is the point, and there's no consensus. And when it comes to the question, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Folklore answers abound just as much today. You'll hear all sorts of answers from people or the media or other religions or scholars. Answers like, Jesus was a good man. He was a teacher. He was a self-deluded prophet or a prophet, but nothing more. He was just an exaggeration of his disciples' imaginations or he didn't exist at all. And each of these answers comes out of certain biases and opinions. And there's certainly no consensus now as there was no consensus then about who Jesus is and what to make of him. But I want to say perhaps the most common folklore answer to Jesus this day is co-opting Jesus for your preferred cause or your preferred political ideology, whatever it may be. And so your answer to the question, who is Jesus, is formed by how you want Jesus to appear more than how he actually appeared. And here's the litmus test to know if you're doing this, to know if you're forming an image of Jesus after your likeness versus receiving how Christ has revealed himself to us. If Jesus never disagrees with you, you have a problem. If Jesus cares more about justice than the forgiveness of sins, you have a problem. If Jesus cares more about the forgiveness of sins then the weightier matters of justice, you have a problem. If Jesus is only ever inclusive, you have a problem. If Jesus is only ever exclusive, you have a problem. And you really have a problem if Jesus dislikes and hates all the same people that you dislike and hate. You've made Jesus into your own image. You've selected the parts of him that work for your biases and opinions to the neglect of the other parts of him that don't square away with your agenda. This is how we end up with a Jesus that looks more like John Wayne than the man from Nazareth. This is how we end up with a Jesus that supports anti-Semitism or white supremacy rather than a Middle Eastern Jew from Galilee. This is how we end up with a Jesus that acquiesces to the cultural status quo of the left or the right rather than the son of man who came to preach about the kingdom of God. You see, these are all folklore answers about Jesus that emerge within communities that construct them according to their image. Folklore answers abounded then in the time of Jesus and now. And so all of us, we need to ask ourselves a hard question. How am I making Jesus in my own image? Because we all do it. The question is not, do I do this or not? The question is, how do I construct Jesus in my own image? And we need the humility to let Jesus answer the question, who is he? And we need the readiness to lay down our preferred but distorted versions of him. 
Now, I do find it interesting that Herod, he doesn't entertain the folklore. Inherently, he knows these answers won't cut it. He says, well, I know it's not John because I beheaded John, but who is this that I hear such things about? And so he seeks to see him. You see, Herod, he has sincere interest, but ultimately it's politically motivated. Herod will see Jesus, but he's going to become complicit in his execution. He'll see Jesus, but he's not going to come to an answer about who is this man. But nevertheless, I think Herod actually models a very important posture for us. It's one thing to hear answers that are floating out there about Jesus, or to hear the different folklore, or to construct a version of Jesus that best suits us. It's another thing to say, no, I need to go and see and hear him for myself. But Herod also represents a warning to us. What motivates you in seeking an answer? Do you really want to know who Jesus is and allow that answer to shape your whole life? Do you want to know and be known by Christ? Or do you just want to know things about Jesus? Is it something else that drives you? So I want to consider the second question. Who do the crowds say that I am? Jump ahead to Luke chapter 9, verses 18 through 19. Here's what we read in Luke. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he asked, Who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, but others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has arisen. So hopefully you notice these are the exact same answers that were offered to Herod. They're now offered to Jesus. It turns out, the crowds are no closer to an answer. Now, I want us to keep in mind, this is the same crowd that just sat before Jesus. He welcomed them and taught them about the kingdom of God. This is the same crowd we read about in Luke chapter 9, verses 10 through 17, that saw Jesus take five loaves and two fish and bless them and break them and give them so that everyone, all 5,000 plus, had their fill and were satisfied. So this crowd has heard Jesus teach about the kingdom of God. This crowd has literally tasted the benefits of his power and miracles. And yet this crowd still offers up folklore answers to the question, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? The crowd say he's John the Baptist or Elijah or one of the prophets. A few years ago, a short documentary online was released called I Needed Color. It's about Jim Carrey and his art. Has anyone seen this? Beautiful. You should look it up. And if you didn't know, Jim Carrey is not just a gifted actor or comedian. You might contest that, but he is a gifted painter. And he talks about the nature of art and what it does for his soul. But one painting in particular is featured in this documentary. It's this painting of Jesus. And here's what Carrey said about why he painted this, this portrait of Jesus. The energy that surrounds Jesus is electric I don't know if Jesus is real. I don't know if he lived. I don't know what he means. But the paintings of Jesus are really my desire to convey Christ consciousness. I wanted you to have the feeling that when you look in his eyes, that he was accepting of who you are. I wanted him to be able to stare at you and heal you from the painting. So Carrie, he says plainly, he doesn't know who Jesus is. Man, some kid is real upset. 
Lord, have mercy on that poor kid. Carrie says plainly that he doesn't know who Jesus is. Even so, he admires Jesus. He even wants people to have some sense of encounter with Jesus. And this makes sense. You can think someone's beautiful and not know them, and yet also want other people to appreciate their beauty. And so this is no judgment on Jim Carrey. I don't know the inner workings of his soul. But by his own confession, he doesn't know who Jesus is. He shows us that in the crowd, you can be an admirer of Jesus, but remain only an observer. This is what it's like to be in the crowd. In the crowd, you can admire Jesus without being a follower. But the crowd isn't where you want to remain. Because in the crowd, you're observing, but you're not involved. In the crowd, your faith, it can be impersonal rather than personal. In the crowd, your answer doesn't really matter. But the answers of the crowd isn't really what's on Jesus' heart in our passage. Because immediately... He asks a follow-up question. This is the second question Jesus asks in verse 20. But who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? There is a difference between being in the crowd and entertaining all the options and having an answer for yourself. There's a difference between being among people who gather around Jesus who may admire his teaching and good deeds and being among people who follow him with an answer. You see, Jesus, he doesn't ultimately want an answer from the crowd. He wants an answer from his disciples. He wants an answer from each of them. He wants an answer from you. He doesn't want you at a safe distance or at a comfortable vantage point. He doesn't want you to admire his teaching and the impact he's had on history and people. He wants you personally invested. He wants an answer from your heart and your mind, an answer that comes from your very lips. He asks, who do you say that I am? And of course, it's Peter who pipes up. Verse 20, the Christ of God. Essentially, Peter connects the dots. Well, Jesus, you've been teaching about the kingdom of God wherever you go. You sent us out to proclaim the kingdom of God. Maybe you're the king. That's what Christ means, Messiah, the anointed king of Israel. You're the king of the promised kingdom, the everlasting kingdom of God, Christ of God. And it's technically the correct answer. This is the correct answer. But even the correct answer can miss the mark. Because when Jesus says, Christ of God, it means something different to Peter than it means to Jesus. You see, Peter wouldn't stop with what I just said about the Christ of God. He would have much more to say because in his time, in his day, expectations around the Messiah abounded in ancient Israel. And so Jesus, he's not content to leave Peter with the answer, the Christ of God. Yes, it's true. It's correct. But he's not the Christ or the Messiah of popular opinion and expectation. You see, contrary to popular opinion, as the Messiah, Jesus didn't come into the world to reestablish Israel as a great political entity and ruler. He didn't come to wage war and overthrow Israel's enemies. He didn't come solely for an earthly kingdom, and on and on I could go. These were some of the expectations around Jesus or the Messiah at that time. And perhaps you're feeling a bit frustrated with me right now. Now, how can we answer 
the question, who is Jesus? Folklore answers aren't going to cut it. It's not enough to be in the crowd. And even if you get the correct answer, it could be wrong. Yep. As we get closer to an answer, we are only close if Jesus fills in the details. You should go to a public bookstore and pick up a book by a non-Christian author about Jesus. And you should see how vastly different the answers are out there about who Jesus is that are very close but not filled in by the details that Jesus himself revealed about himself in the scriptures. You can have the correct answer and be miles off. We can say things like, Jesus is Lord. We can say things like, Jesus is Savior. We can say things like, Jesus is my friend. And all of these things are true of him. But what do these things mean to you? And what do these things mean to Jesus? And what are you doing to bridge that gap? Ultimately, are you more committed to what these things mean to you? Or to what these things mean to Jesus? I remember in seminary, I was uh, with one of my favorite professors, and he used to infuriate me because he would always ask hard questions. And one of them was this, hey, we're studying Romans. This was like a high-level Romans class. We're only dealing with the Greek. It's super nerdy. And he goes, if the Apostle Paul came in the room, I said, wait, is that an option? He said, no, but hear me out. If the Apostle Paul came in the room, and we're reading this highly contested letter of Romans that people disagree about all this nuance, And Paul sat down and said, here's what I meant. Would you change your mind? If you read the Gospels and Jesus says something about himself that doesn't align with what you think about him, who's wrong? I have been wrong about Jesus far too many times in my life. And I'm fascinated how I can keep reading the scriptures and discovering how wrong I still am, even as your pastor. Friends, we need to be more committed to what Christ says about himself than what we say about him. He is our Lord, but he gets to define what that means. And so, Peter says, you are the Christ of God, the Messiah. And Jesus immediately fills in the details because he knows That Christ of God means something different to Peter than what it means to Jesus. Look at verses 21 through 22. Jesus strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. So now, for the first time, Jesus in Luke's gospel tells his disciples how he as the Messiah will bring about the kingdom of God. He tells them what he must do to establish this kingdom. But it's not the destiny that people expected for the Messiah. Not even close. Rejected, killed, raised. The opposite of all their expectations. You see, Jesus, he doesn't fit into tidy categories. Not for rulers like Herod. Not for crowds. Not even for his disciples. But in this answer, we have to see that the death of Jesus was not an unfortunate mishap. 
He's not a failed martyr or revolutionary. Things didn't just spiral out of control. Jesus wasn't crushed in the wheels of history. He didn't die disappointed and disillusioned and in failure. The way Jesus died was according to plan. This is why he came into the world. This was the destiny of the Messiah as the suffering servant of God. Jesus came for the purpose of being rejected, killed, and raised in order to establish the everlasting kingdom of God that will not be destroyed. So who is Jesus? Jesus is the Christ of God, the Messiah of God. He is the king of the kingdom. In our passage, we see he's not a king like Herod or the kings of this world. He's not the Messiah that conforms to all the hype and expectations of Israel. Instead, Jesus is the king who feeds the multitudes. But he's not just interested in multiplying some bread and fish for us. The miracles of Jesus always point to something more. Jesus is the king who offers his life to be blessed and broken and given so that we may eat and be satisfied. This is who Jesus is. And the invitation is to move beyond folklore answers. The invitation is to discover this answer that Jesus shares with us. But more so, it's an invitation then to step out of the crowd and into true discipleship. Uh, the philosopher Soren Kierkegaard uh, struggled with the cultural versions of Christianity during the 19th century in Denmark. Does anybody remember Marie, our intern from years ago? She's from Denmark. She kept trying to teach me how to say Soren Kierkegaard properly. It just came to mind that I said it wrong again. I don't know how to say it, but it's something like that. And here's, here's what Kierkegaard took issue with. Faith was the default setting for citizens then. You were born a Christian. If you were born in Denmark in his life, you're a Christian. But it was all lip service. It was a very large crowd with very little discipleship. There were many admirers of Jesus, but very few followers. Now, our cultural setting, it's actually very different than what Kierkegaard experienced. We live in an increasingly post-Christian age. So faith is no longer the default. Indeed, having no faith or checking the box, no religion, is more plausible than having faith. And so there's many detractors, few admirers, and even fewer followers still. So when we ask the question, who is Jesus? There's no longer a default answer provided by culture like Kierkegaard had. And any answer that we do find, it feels kind of elusive, at best uncertain, and perhaps the question just seems unanswerable. And this is in part because of the air we breathe, because of the culture all around us. But even so, the solution Kierkegaard proposed for his time still applies for ours. It has a timelessness to it. And here is his solution. Be contemporaneous with Christ. Be contemporaneous with Christ. I'm pretty sure he made up the word, but it's good. Contemporaneous. What does he mean? Don't just be an admirer of Jesus. Don't just be among the crowd of people who are interested in him generally. Be an intimate follower of Jesus. Walk in his footsteps. Be close to Christ. Don't allow a distance of geography or length of time to detract you from the accessibility of his living presence in your life, 
Discover him in scripture. Discover him in the faith of the body of believers. Discover him in spiritual practices like prayer and contemplation. Discover him in your everyday life. This is what Kierkegaard meant by be contemporaneous with Christ. Live with him as if he is your contemporary. Because Jesus, what we must see in this passage, he doesn't just offer us the correct answer about who he is. As important as that answer is, Jesus offers us himself. He offers himself and nothing less. He didn't come into the world so you could think correct things about God. That's an implication of why he came into the world. He came into the world so you could have him for yourself. If you're contemporaneous with him, when Jesus Christ offers his body to be blessed and broken and given on the cross for forgiveness and reconciliation with God, when he offers himself as the bread of life, you will gladly ingest him. As strange as that sounds. Because this is just a scriptural metaphor for faith. A faith that believes what Jesus says about him and follows him. A living faith that expresses itself in love. And when you ingest Christ, like the multitudes, you will be filled. You will be satisfied with him. Jesus asks each of us, who do you say that I am? And the question I think we need to ask ourselves is this. Does your answer move you to be contemporaneous with him? If not, something is amiss. I simply want to invite you to keep seeking. Let's pray.